You're listening to an American Theatre podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group. www.americantheatre.org I guess we're live now. Uh, good afternoon. Welcome to Off Script, American Theatre's uh, live chat and podcast on all things theatrical. Uh, this is it's May 12th, 2023. I'm Rob Weiner, Kent, he, him editor-in-chief of American Theatre Magazine, and I'm uh, calling in not from where I look like I am. We'll get to that in a second. I'm actually calling in from Queens, uh, the lands of the Lenape, and I'm here with... Allie Pearson. I'm the associate editor here at American Theatre, calling in from the land of the Muncie Lenape in Queens, and um, we are really excited to talk with you today. So, Rob... We're excited. Uh, we're, yeah, we're back after a hiatus, basically. Uh, we, we just had a lot of a lot going on in the past fall and spring uh, and winter. Uh, we basically, uh, our last uh, off script was in November. We convened a special dialogue about the many plays happening in New York uh, around Jewishness and anti-Semitism at a very unfortunately relevant time. That was a great dialogue that was actually hosted by uh, uh, Gab Gabrielle Hoyt um, in this space. And then uh, we also, um, uh, before that, we had our top 10 plays chat uh, with uh, Lynn Anadijan, Lauren Gunderson. So we used to do this every other week. We're going to do this monthly now. Uh, we have one lined up for June. Um, and the format I'm going to do, today we're really excited to talk to Ty Defoe, wonderful director, writer, trickster, all around man of the theater, about his new production of Rent. He's directing a theater under the stars in Houston, which is behind me. And then after we speak to him, we're going to check in with John Moore, who's an arts reporter in Denver about the state of the field and what trends and shows he's watching there. Um, so that's going to kind of be our form. We're going to talk to a theater maker or other theater personage and then talk to a theater journalist, arts journalist about it. Um, a quick plug, we didn't make sure that uh, if you're not already a member of americantheater.org, uh, please go to americantheater.org slash join to support our work. Um, I, there are a lot of big things happening in 2023. Uh, we have a Chicago office opening soon, uh, headed by our former Chicago uh, editor, J.R. Pierce. I think this is the first time we were announcing this officially. You heard it here first. J.R. Pierce, who was a wonderful uh, editor for us for a couple of years from 2020 to 2021, and is in Seattle now, is going to come back to Chicago and run an office there that will cover Chicago and the Midwest for American theater. That's exciting. Uh, look for more about that. I can also tease. We did a survey of uh, readers and potential readers and members and the field in general about coming back into a, some sort of print version, as you know, or online only. Uh, I don't know if all of you know that, but I still get people asking, which issue will this be in? So uh, we are planning a return to print and things are looking up. I can't really say much more at this point, but the momentum around a turnaround is, is for American theater, which has just been Allie and me and some wonderful freelancers all over the country for 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 a long time um this is the year i think things are turning around um speaking of which we'll click quickly go through a few of the fe features we've been doing uh we won't be able to cover all the features we've done since last november but most recently the beat i've seen seemed to be on is artistic turnover at all the major theaters and this is sort of news but we, we also try to delve in and do long long articles q a's basically with artistic leaders there's a matched pair recently where I spoke to Molly Smith, who was on our off script last summer, actually. Uh, Molly Smith, who's leaving the arena stage, and Hannah Sharif, 
who has been named her successor. I spoke to each of them separately, uh, two wonderful pieces about them, very excited about, about that baton being, being passed. Um, another DC area uh, artist director who gave notice uh, a couple months ago was Stephanie Ibarra. Um, and we spoke uh, a lot about it was it was she had some challenges there with her board, but her board did offer her a new contract. So she, we spoke a lot about uh, the challenges that a certain cohort of artistic leaders of color who came in around 2018, 2019 faced and some of the challenges, but also some of the triumphs they had uh, in changing the field. One that was less positive, uh, same same cohort of people was Nataki Garrett. It was one of the most painful stories I've had to report in a long time. Uh, she is stepping down from Oregon Shakes after only about four years there, really less than that. She only had, was able to program one season. It's a thorny, complicated story. There's a lot of racism involved uh, in the way she was treated and the way um, the way this, this went down. But it's a very complicated story, and I, I hope you look at that. Um, and it does raise questions about whether these artistic directors um, of any race, but especially uh, artistic leaders of color, women of color, are given all the tools they need to uh, to succeed. So that is, uh, you know, you can read about that. Uh, also spoke to Bob Falls, a, a couple of a couple of leaders who've been around for a long time. Bob Falls, who left the Goodman Theater after thirty five plus years, and then nerded out for a long time with Barry Grove and Lynn Meadow about the history of Manhattan Theater Club, which I had no idea just how how much was involved in moving from an off-off-Broadway space, tiny space, paying pe people barely paying, you know, cab fare for people who are in their shows to becoming a Broadway powerhouse. So that was an interesting interview. I've looked for all those. Ali, you've also been busy writing. Tell us about a little, few of the things you've been writing and reading in a magazine. Yeah, I mean, I've had a busy few months. I recently got to touch down with um, the God of Carnage production, uh, the first off-Broadway debut by TBTB. That was a very fun feature and they're still running through May 20th. So catch them at Theater Row if you're in New York City. Um, I also had the, the privilege and the pleasure of writing a kind of retrospective piece on uh, Dean's departure from New Dramatist as a, as a playwright there and the kind of controversy that happened there. And I really got to find the community beyond the controversy, as I like to say. Um, and that's another great piece for you to check out if you're interested in kind of leadership struggles and uh, complicated HR dynamics. Uh, I think it's relevant to a lot of organizations right now. I've heard from quite a few people who've responded to that article and said, you know, it really made me think about leadership right now. And I think I think it's worth checking out. Um, and another great piece uh, that we recently published is about Larissa Fassfars's Thanksgiving play, which is running right now, thanks to Second Stage. So uh, if you're really interested in her comedy, uh, check out that great conversation. Uh, and that's what I've been thinking about lately. Rob, take it away with some yeah. more. Yeah, it's a really good piece. Uh, her play's great. You should check it out. Um, it's We published it years ago, um, and it became one of the most produced plays of this past season, and now it's on Broadway. Um, speaking of new plays, we've run, run a big piece about rural premiere Wisconsin, which has been a couple months, I believe April through June, festival in Wisconsin, uh, highlighting uh, new play production in, in three major lo locations, Milwaukee, 
Madison, and then Door County. Uh, fascinating, a lot going on there. Uh, uh, speaking of new plays, there were, uh, uh, you know, the Pulitzer was just given out as uh, to Sana's Tusi's English. The ATC Steinberg Award went to Christina Anderson's Ripple the Wave that carried me home. Uh, we had a wonderful piece, and I want to make sure I get the names right, uh, about the sort of serendipitous, synchronicitous uh, premiere of three new off-Broadway plays by Afro-Latina playwrights, uh, Guadalupe del Carmen, Christine Eve Cato, and Julissa Contreras. So we had a wonderful dialogue uh, that Jacob Santos wrote for us. You check out all these wonderful stories and so many more, we can't even go into them all on our website. One day we can say, check them out in the print magazine as well, we're hoping. Um, I, I think we can go to our guest now, uh, Ty Defoe is an Ojibwe and Oneida Nations writer, director, performer, trickster. The hyphens go on and on for the many things that he's do, he does. He is now directing a production of Rent at Theater of the Stars. I can't remember if it's already started. Uh, Ty, are you there? Hello. Hello. Is it already in previews or is it? Is it we, we are in tech right now. You're in tech. You're in tech. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so that well, must be fun. Right Thanks for taking time. This. Yeah. 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 Good timing. It's so good to see you, Ty. I, I think full disclosure, you worked for TCG many years ago. You were our first EDI uh director at TCG. I don't even know, was that 10 years ago almost? Um almost, but as, yeah, it was the first um back when folks referred to it as ED and I or just yes, they, I even, right? When, yeah, when we yeah. didn't have this language or conversations were not even happening. I was the the first fellow when I worked at TCG. That's right two years there in That's one right. in midtown yeah i miss seeing you around around the halls and uh i uh we'll get we'll, i want to talk more about about that and that aspect of your work um but i want to start with rent uh because that's where that's where you're what you're working on right now and i want to know a little bit of what's what's your own background experience of the show I'm, I'm not going to ask your age but just like when did rent hit you and how did it hit you and what's has it been part of your life you know, I, I theater, theater for me as an indigenous, I think, artist has been around the fire. It's been around telling stories. So I have this backdoor entry to, end quote, American theater, since, you know, a lot of these theaters are built on the lands of native indigenous people. So um, that's my background, I think, with theater is, is learning about that in that particular manner, um, which also brings me to right many years past and flash forward to rent um an uncle of mine actually as i was traveling back and forth from the reservation to the city there was um you know just a little production of rent that was going on um and i didn't know what it was and i saw a little sandwich board outside of a theater and it was in the city of Chicago. So it was like this 12 hour drive into the city of Chicago. And um, I'm like, oh, theater, that's that seems really interesting. Wonder what it is. Um, you, you know, because I grew up in a subsistence community and, you know, doing a lots of other kinds of things in, in the arts, um, both politically and artistically. And so I actually got a ticket. My uncle dropped me off and I got a ticket from a unhoused individual who was scalping a ticket from a rent head that they got a ticket from, right? So if folks don't know, uh, at the time there was um, 
a charge to have these discounted tickets so folks can go see the show over and over again. So, um, so I got this this scalped ticket, if you will, from an individual for. I think it was like $10 or something like this. Right. And I was wow. like, yeah, I'll go and see the show. I'll go check it out and see what's happening. So I went in and uh, saw the show and I was like, wow, this is amazing. It was um, song, dance, music, the everything happening all at the same time, all at once. I don't know if you've seen yeah. that film, but sure. um, it really, <laughs> <Right>. kinda, <laughs> you know, to me, I was like, wow, what, 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 what did I just see? And um, my uncle and some other folks were like, oh, it's, you know, they're calling it a musical. It's a musical. So I was like, interesting, Um, because I did see a musical before that in the park. And I think it was like Anything Goes, where there were like tap dancers and, (laughs) you know, like hundreds of youth and people on the stage in some park also in Chicago. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So this was like my um, first experience about, you know, extended sequence, like rock music, things that I would be hearing, um, you know, just from my brothers and sisters that were listening to music. And so that was my first foyer into hearing and knowing even what Rent was or is. Wow. Wow. Based Um, on a free ticket. (laughs) Well, nearly free ticket. That's so you can't, so you literally came all the way and that was a New York production, obviously the opera, the Broadway production you're talking about, right? You know, yeah. I, I'm I'm anxious to like go back and check what production it was. But oh, it was, okay. okay. It, I think it was like a touring production or something. Oh, okay, okay. But it was and it was it was near Chicago or it was it was. Yeah, it was in it was in the city. It was, of in, it was in in Chicago. Okay, it was it must have been the the tour or the or the sit down in Chicago. That's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> pretty wild. Definitely. And now today you have Rent at Theater Under the Stars. What excites you about this production right now? I mean, you're in the thick of it at the moment with tech, but. (laughs) Oh, yes, definitely. Well, you know, like thinking about this musical, I think in terms of the musical itself, I, you know, since the the world is evolving in such a, a very nuanced way, I always thought Rent was this this form of queering wild, right? We're in very nuanced conversation as it relates to LBGTQ plus TGNC community and my own community. I'm kind of viewing this rent as a, a form of um, resistance, right? A form of queering wild, a form of becoming unapologetically us. And this production in Texas in and of itself with the political tenor that's happening with the state, right? I think no better way to speak to masses and shift hearts and minds by using theater. I think it's a a form of not only survival, but a form of flourishing. So when I think about something like Rent in 2023, I think it's the people united, you know, that we, we won't be divided here. And I think as an indigenous person who thinks a lot about sovereignty and land-based movements and the various locations that happen in rent, right? And the bridge to bridge Houston, Texas to Lenape Hoking there in New York City. Mm-hmm. Think about that there is history on stage as it is playing out in real time. So we are only one circle removed from this um, this history, this tenor, this New Bohemia, we are here from that 1996 production. 
right? And I'm sure rents will happen on into the future, um, various forms of self-expression. And I'm really excited actually to mark this moment in time and then to see, right, future productions of rent 30 years from now about what, what it can do and how it's speaking to um, what's going on on Turtle Island in the United States um, as it relates to the rights of trans individuals as LBGTQ plus individuals. I wanted to ask you about the, 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 the one thing about uh, rent that everyone thinks shorthand when they think about gender. Obviously, there's a lot of queer characters in it, a lot of characters have AIDS. And then there's Angel. And I don't know if Angel was defined from the start. I think there's a lot of debate online that I've I've read and over the years about is Angel Angel's queer, but is Angel a drag performer? Is Angel trans? Can you tell me about is is Angel the is sort of a way into reconsidering this musical's, you know, take on gender? Sure. I kind of view the piece actually as a very much of an ensemble piece, right? Mm. So as much as, um, you know, I, I have a tendency to think about what is unseen at the time that a piece maybe was written because of, right, political tenor where the world was at the time. And why couldn't any one of the characters be on the spectrum of gender, right? Mm -hmm. If gender is a colonial construct, what are the ways that each character is you know, sort of speak on that spectrum of how they are personally identifying. But this character, Angel in particular, I think is on the, the spectrum of gender, of transcending gender, um, not necessarily um, it totally going away because of, you know, things like the, the estate that exists, authorship and ownership that's operating on the back channels of theater and how it gets made. But mm -hmm. I think um, this idea that Angel is just Angel, Angel is on a continuous journey of an ever-evolving gender expression. Right. Okay. Yeah. So th there was a time when, you know, Jonathan Larson's cis straight man uh, wrote this piece, very sympathetic to queer people, but it obviously didn't have the same language. Uh, and then I, yeah, that's a, that's powerful. I don't know if you know about the Chicago production of Tick, Tick, Boom. that We, we wrote about that. The Edge Theater did. Uh, a tick tick boom and they got the rights from the from the estate to basically cast it completely with non-binary and, and and trans artists so that um it was just it was it was mixed and scrambled basically um obviously you don't you, it doesn't look like from the photos i've seen i'm not sure that uh, the rent quite has the same leeway but can you talk a little bit is it Again, beyond beyond Angel, you talked to him about him uh, them being on the spectrum. I don't even know what pronouns you use for Angel, actually. Um, sure, sure. <laughs> I know. It's like, how can we know what we don't know? And if right. we don't know the thing, how can we change it, right? Yes, yes. Which is really ec exciting to think and reimagine what actually Rent could be. So, you know, I'm just thinking about songs like really touching songs that I think um, folks remember from the piece, which is um, a song like Will I, for example, that song talking about, um, and if folks don't know that song, it's like um, almost like a, um, a siphon, a choral number of people asking the question about losing their dignity um, at a specific time, right? So to see a stage a group of ensemble members that are made up of New York City, as well as people here in Houston with our Houston, Texas nods to ask the question of, will I lose my dignity being on the gender spectrum, singing their faces off, asking this Houston audience about that, 
you know, there's something that reaches the heart cry, I feel like at the time of something that maybe we are unveiling that that wasn't seen, however, maybe have existed and was in the culture at the time, but it wasn't what dominant society was sort of examining or even American theater amplifying at that time, right? The idea of becoming unapologetically us. So I think there's something that's... um really creative about creating subversive forms of theater, creating trickster art, if you will. What are the ways that we're um, getting out these messages through the art itself by design, by the cast of people, both on the stages and also off the stages? How are we re-envisioning what some of the the chronicles of time um, can be? There's something that's really important too, I think, about the insider knowledge and outsider knowledge that exists in in the piece too as it relates to the 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 film documentary right the gaze that i i believe mark and i i you know have a tendency to think that jonathan larson may have wrote himself in his own piece as we are starting to see in some of the the musicals that are are coming out to on broadway and various others of course but I think there's something about, um, you know, getting a bird's eye view as well as a micro view into the piece. So we have we're playing a lot with um, visual design as well to see how we can break the binary if that exists in this piece, utilizing um, video projection design so that we can actually show things in a fractal nature and things that if folks are fans of Adrian Marie Brown and emergent strategies, what that can look like on a both micro level and macro level. Fascinating. Oh, we just wanted to share. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. This is your, this is a photo of your cast, beautiful cast. Uh, and that's Angel, Angel in the middle there. Um, do you want to talk at all about the casting process or, or finding these folks? Are they all from around Houston area or are they folks you worked with before? Sure. Yeah, it's actually a mixture of both. We found some folks who are in New York City, um, you know, out there working as actors. And also for some of them, it's a coming home. So they some of these folks like um, Will Mann and Adrian Lopez have roots in Texas. So it was really interesting to understand and be in a conversation with them about what does home mean to you and what does yeah. this belonging mean in terms of creating, right? This like new bohemia. We have um, Simone Gundy and Teresa Zimmerman who are Houston-based actors and just phenomenal voices who, um, you know, are predominantly mostly known for being in bands and singing um, out there here mm -hmm. in Houston at various venues and Jamal Houston, who is Dallas-based artist and we have Isabella D'Souza Moore who is actually Los Angeles based but is like Los Angeles New York and we have um, Scott Redmond there on the side who's our Mark who mm -hmm. is New York based actor and Adrian Lopez of course who is um, from Houston but um, is in New York at the time so the casting process to me when these folks walked in to the door if you will and it was very apparent that these are the individuals that need to cultivate this new bohemia. Um, you know, most of the cast, except for one individual, um, identifies as being on um, this, 
the spectrum in some kind of way as BIPOC individuals and not even identifying as one race, um, ethnicity, culture, or sexual orientation. So what you're looking at to me when I see this cast of folks is a, uh, you know, this idea about what the future looks like. And so I was really interested in the conversation between the past, what's happening in the present moment here, of course, in terms of statehood, but also what's going to be happening in the future. So while some of the, you know, the costume pieces and things might look like circa 1996, it's definitely, um, you know, uh, composites of both past, present, and future. And what's really has maybe been bubbling on the surface for some time. Um, but this cast, the, I will tell you, if folks are around, you ha you must come and see this performance. These singers, these actors are just beasts of singers singing <laughs> their face off. I mean, I feel really grateful every day I get to be in the rehearsal room with them, hearing these songs over and over again. I mean, the music is stunning, but also the the type the vocal quality and type that they bring to these um songs and to the characters is magnificent there isn't a day that i don't think i leave the rehearsal room not welling up with tears because of the honesty the truth and the heart cry that these individuals right perhaps for so long themselves as well as and their ancestors have been wanting to cry out to future generations to come about asking questions of dignity, asking questions about um, resistance, asking questions and making statements about there's no better day than today to think about what it means to not do business as usual and to un undo the, the boundary lines of what various types of binaries can confine us into commodifying a human existence. Right. So it's um, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. And big smiles here, of course. Yeah, um, I'm going to stop sharing. But if you want to see more of their beautiful faces, you know where to find them in Houston. Um, but um, I think with with Rent and, and Larson's other works as well, like it's created this place to have a conversation, even if it didn't necessarily have the language at the time that it was written about belonging and being an outsider and having a home and land and what does it mean to not own that land and like Ooh. it's created this really interesting space to grow from like you've said um and I'm curious how that feels in the political landscape in Houston right now do do people feel safe telling these stories um and how has that been? Yeah, really great question. And I have many answers for it. And a few I'll touch on, right? I think in terms of what it means to direct a piece like this, I mean, I had to lead into this production by leading from the center. And what does that mean? It means finding a group of individuals to work with that actually care, right? It's not just their, their job, but it is a calling. It is a calling to include local artists and activists in the fabric and work of what the show is going to be um, both on the stage and off the stage, right? Um, because 
there are artists whose lived and real experience are at stake after showing up to your work and perhaps potentially feeling like maybe your life might be threatened just by walking down the street, right? So there's a, an extreme amount of care in the container that needs to go on, one. Two, we're also working with um, a group of teenagers. So at Tuts, something really important and special, I think, about working at Tuts has been including teenagers who didn't do not know what rent is, barely even heard of it, um, don't know what was happening at the time in 1996, <laughs> um, you know, real conversations about drug use, um, about nudity, about what, you know, all the things that you might want to know when you are a teenager, but perhaps um, pending on your family and all of that, um, you know, you get privy to, et cetera. Um, so I say all that because we've definitely have invited local organizations, uh, the Montrose Center and some other organizations to come in and, and connect with us and talk with us about their real experiences about what's happening in the city here of Houston. Um, I've also um, invited doctors to come in because I really wanted to know what was happening at the time so we could all start on the same page about what this, um, what a um, sur surviving was and not also what it means to not survive in terms of what happens to the body breakdown um, in terms of, you know, not knowing what HIV AIDS was at the time. And I think we all can, as a larger global community, sort of understand what that is, right? Because we, we've all went through COVID in some sort of capacity, but it was really important to me to include real voices of people who really understood um, the language, the, the tenor, the ethos, I think at the time. And also it was very healing for individuals to understand the, the real and accurate portrayal of what people are going through. Um, um, there's someone in our cast who is an uh, amazing ensemble member, um, Gemini Quintos, who is mother, uh, for example, and has shared this with many people, um, is, including our cast, was um, actually a nurse working in the hospitals at the time. Um, and like COVID, um, I think at the time of HIV AIDS, which is also still happening, an epidemic that's happening, um, was able to share some anecdotes and stories with the cast so that we could also know and understand not only what was happening if people received this um, disease, but also people that were helping on the other end in the hospitals, right? What was it like to witness um, your friends and family um, deteriorate, deteriorate, right? Quite frankly. So, um, and out of all of that too, how are people finding joy? How are they finding joy with all of this trauma? And I'll tell you, if we were not crying in rehearsal, um, even in tech, we are laughing so much. Definitely the show brings together to find a community. I think there, there have been lifelong friends that have been found in this community here. And um, it is truly um, a joy to work with these individuals. And we're really excited too for opening night, uh, for people to come on out from the community in this the city of Houston so that they can witness and share in the joy. Because I feel like some of those rehearsals where we had people come and talk to us about their personal lived experience, they are much a part of this ensemble 
as anyone who are is going to be singing and acting on the stage. Awesome. I wanted to, speaking so of Houston, beautiful. I wanted to, to tell me a little bit about this space that I, viewers can see behind me. Podcast listeners will not see this, but uh, I don't know anything about this. It's a, it looks like a large space, like an opera house almost. But then the, under the stars part is a is a what a movable uh, ceil, you know ceiling that comes in and out, right? Yes. Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, it's so great, and you know. Um, the theater under the stars, most people think, oh, it's it's outside because there's actual right. stars, uh, literally. But I think it's more, um, you know, this idea, there are stars on the ceiling for folks that don't know. And every 20 minutes, I believe, there is a shooting star that flies across the ceiling in this, what looks like, yes, from the inside, a giant opera house of sorts that's over 3,000 seat large. Um, there is a mezzanine, there's also a balcony, and underneath the overhang there are also, um, you know, stars that are projected from various light sources. Um, our highest stairs that we have in the scaffolding on the set of rent is 17 foot high. So we had to install the set in pieces. So it's basically an adult jungle gym. If people want to know exactly what the set looks like and everything. And we have an yeah. amazing uh, local Houston designer, Ryan McGettigan, uh, working on our sets here, um, which I'm really uh, excited for people to come and check out. The seats are very plush and velour <laughs> and luxurious. <laughs> um, and if folks come too, we really want folks to feel like they are immersed into this um, piece as well. So we have our little street team of teenagers handing out flyers, of course, for Maureen's over the moon performance, talking about gentrification of, H of Houston a la New York City, um, as well as this very large dramaturgical packet that outlines various pieces of information in the lobby of the Hobby Center that folks can learn more about some of these nuanced pieces. We have um, also for the rent heads out there and folks that really, really get nerdy on this musical in the lobby, we're going to have an installation display of some pieces of props that... Um, our prop individual has collected over the course of time, including t-shirts, including the metal chairs that are bolted together because, um, you know, they were banged on, stood on for various courses of time. We have uh, a padlock door that's signed by Anthony Rapp himself and other little Easter eggs that I think people will really enjoy coming to see. I'm like, wow, we've basically created a museum in the lobby of the hobby store. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty fun. Um, well, I don't want to segue too roughly, but, you know, looking through your Instagram uh, uh, ties is is delight. There's a lot of stuff about rent there, but also I noticed not too long, not too long ago, earlier this year, you're working on a couple of your own projects as a writer and I believe composer. Is that right? You're also a composer. Yeah, I'm doing so yeah. many things. Sometimes I forget to post on there and I, I, I have to <laughs> update it. I'm just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> so, yeah. So I don't know what you, can what you can talk about, what you can't, but there's, there was a script page for something called Big City Harmony. And there was a, something that I believe is called Queer Tendo that you did in London. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about this, or maybe there's other projects you want to, you want to mention that you're, are in sure. the works. 
Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yes. Queer Tendo was so fun. That was so fun to to work in the virtual space. But like one of my first pieces like in person there. So that was really wonderful. And that was directed by Charles Quitner, who's an up and coming queer director, which I was really thrilled to collaborate on. Um, Big City Harmony, I, I was commissioned by First Stage Milwaukee in Wisconsin, Woo, my home state. And it's a TYA production. And this piece is going to be directed by Johami Morales. Um, and the artistic director there is Jeff Frank. And you know, um, this is one of the first youth pieces of theater that I saw. And it was a production of Charlotte's Web way back when. And um, I, I, I went to it and I saw it. And then um, they did it the following year. And it was really interesting having conversations about indigeneity and how Charlotte's web is related to that. So um, long story short, I'll wrap that up. But I wanted to say um, I, I was so excited to work and be asked to get to commission a piece there. Um, this piece is called Big City Harmony. And yeah. it's about a young indigenous girl that moves from the reservation to the city um, because of the the death of her mother. And it's um, she ends up in this city and really has to figure out how to adapt there. And it's actually super fun, despite, you know, some of the TYA theme, the themes in it uh, for TYA individuals. It's really um, a piece not to be missed because it talks about what this idea of shape shifting and what hmm. that means um, to indigenous people and culture. Um, and in particular to youth, the power of shape-shifting. So I hope folks come see that. And um, let's see, I also have another commission with um, Syracuse Stage entitled Our Words, Our Seeds, and that will tour in 24-25, which I'm really excited about too. Um, and then I'm also got a commission to write another piece with my big sister and mentor and just all around collaborator, uh, Larissa Fasthorse, um, titled For the People. And that will be in the fall at the Guthrie Theater, which I'm so excited about. That is a, a comedy that we have written together and it's so fun. That's going to be directed by Mike Garces. And we are um, amidst right now uh, in casting and doing some design meetings to get the production up in October of. Remind me, the, remind me the name of that again, Ty. Uh, the name is For the People. For the People, right, right, right. Yeah. That's so, awesome. Oh, fun. You've so been so fun. kind. Oh, sorry. You've been so kind as to mention Larissa, which gives me a wonderful segue to talk about Indigenous Direction, which you two founded together. It's a consulting company. Can you tell me a little bit about the work that that you do and and what you've been up to with that? Sure, sure. Yeah. So Larissa and I co-founded Indigenous Direction and we co-founded it out of sitting in an affinity group space, just being the two only Native people at many events for some time. And we were like, wow, should we just go, you know, get some lunch and talk about how we're going to change this? Mm -hmm. And so Indigenous dir Direction um, came, came about. And the work that we do, we are a consulting company. And what we do is truly amplify the voices of Native Indigenous people. We are 
definitely not a theater company, so we don't necessarily produce theater, um, although we are theater makers ourselves and we combine forces and we are finding a new model with this consulting company. We've helped people um, on various forms of their evolution in terms of understanding and knowing what it means to work with Native Indigenous people um, in their theater companies or art institutions on Native land with, by, and for Native people, and the inclusivity and the work that in that has to go into that kind of, of, of happening. Um, some of our projects do include working um, on the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. You know, I don't know if you all saw that, It's but it's, you know, viewed by, I think, 20 million, in quote, American televisions across the United States and also worldwide. Um, and so that is really truly that project in particular is amplifying the voices of the Wampanoag individuals. And so we create teams of people to work together. Um, it's Larissa and I, but it's also, we work with associates. We also work with the community themselves. We work with grandmothers. We work with other people to try to do right, right? For so long, colonization has not had the conversation with native indigenous people. So our charge with indigenous direction is to do that. We've also are training various um, uh, creative producers and people who are on the other side of the table, right, in terms of what it means to uh, creative produce, um, manage, um, help in various ways uh, with organizing in some of the administration with with folks who do identify as Native Indigenous people. And myself and Larissa Fasthorse, as well as Michael Garces, we are working on models to make that happen through uh, ASU. So currently I'm a professor, I have a professorship of practice at the Medieval and Renaissance Studies at ASU, who have provided as a provided the three of us a bed to create this work and make it go forward on into the future. So we're really excited about um, some of the work that we can do there. So folks will be able to look, look for some of those possibilities to both learn as well as understand the, the model that we're trying to create to do that. ASU in my home state. Um, oh yeah, okay, where at? Uh, Phoenix is where I grew up, yeah. Oh, in Phoenix, Phoenix. okay, yeah. fantastic. Of course, there's all Native names around there, Hohokam. Yes. You know, uh, the, the Kachina Theater we went to when I was a kid, all, all that stuff. But, but anyway, the, Herd, the Herd Museum is a wonderful uh, wonderful Native museum. I mean, the, 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 the programs they have there. But I'm sure uh, you're aware of them. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Such good people there. Yeah, yeah, and I, I I spent a lot of time in LA as well, and I feel like the Autry is another partner. It's been inspiring and interesting for me to watch museums, which I grew up as a as a little white kid going to, which didn't have everything right. And 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 the Autry Museum obviously started as a Western heritage, whatever you know. But the way the way that they've embraced the full, you know, uh, spectrum of, of the lands they're on is really been inspiring. So I'm glad to hear you're part of that. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it is really inspiring. I mean, so much even has changed. I mean, yes, you know, this idea. I mean, we we tell folks we're like, hey, um, listen, <laughs> you know, that it, it's you know there are 
political changes that need to happen for reasons, right? Yes. Because of the 500 years of like white settler colonialism that happened. So things like, you know, celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day instead of Columbus Day right, is right. very important, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I could have a whole conversation about why that's important. There are steps in the process. It's not just a, a one-off, one-and-done thing, right? And sure. everybody should, in some way, I believe, should be activated in that because our theaters, art institutions, museums, are on the land that was stolen um, from native people. You know, there's a lot of land acknowledgements that, that are in programs and said before uh, uh, performances now. Do you feel like that's a positive change? I feel like there's some, some people feel it's just checking a box or it's just a recitation and then they move on with them. You know, there's nothing beyond that uh, just rote mention of the lands we're on, you know? Yeah, yeah, understood. I mean, even here at, you know, Theater Under the Stars, I think I do believe that this will be the first time that they will have a land acknowledgement hmm. um, in the theater and on the stages, which being an Indigenous director, right, Anishinaabe, Oneida director, that's important to me, right? So I'm like, okay, right, there, there, there are steps. And if, if that didn't happen, there wouldn't be one. Right? right. So I'm right. thinking about is is it a is it a checkbox? It it is um I would say it's on the to-do list, right? We know these to-do lists. Um, it is a to-do list where the box should never be checked, right? You know, you want to check it, it feels good and satisfying to check that box. But that um idea about how you're amplifying the indigenous native voice is always on the to-do list, it is always yeah. ever which also can be maddening to people that feel the gratification of checking it off the list, right? But it's an ever-evolving conversation, just like safety, just like liberation, just mm -hmm. like, um, you know, other ways of creating inclusivity is also on that to-do list. It, sh it should always be on there. It should always be in dialogue. Definitely. I mean, I'm so excited by this this work that you've been doing and the progress folks have been making. And I'm, I'm hopeful that at, at a time we can move beyond acknowledging the land that we're on and, and naming like this is stolen land and including indigenous voices in those conversations and in the spaces yeah. beyond just a note in a program. And I'm hoping we can get there sooner rather than later. I know. I, I, I am hopeful for that, too. And I do see folks doing that. Um, you know, our Larissa and I's work at the Guthrie Theater, because we started doing work there with Indigenous Direction, started to really um, become embedded in that theater in particular, right? So with our time there over the course of six years now, right, the culminating in this show um, that will be on the stage where they never before had a play that was written um, and or, you know, there are other st stats that I could say, but I will say written by Native Indigenous um, presenting people whose land is adjacent and very close to, you know, the Guthrie Theater, for example. Um, never before have had, you know, been a Indigenous Native task force, where it's not just Larissa and I, right, we talk to like 10 other people that we are engaging with there, right? So what does it mean to create a 360 inclusive, inclusivity, uh, a circle of people to, you know, 
um, engage in dialogue with, which I think is really, really important. There are things, you know, at the theater, if people come to that opening for for the people, you will witness uh, installation in the, you know, the foyer, the walkway of Native arts on the wall. And oftentimes, too, you see this. I just got done being a choreographer on Between Two Knees that had co-pros across the country. You will see a lot of uh, lobby work and other, right, um, things that are going into theaters and talking to local organizations. You will see that done many times in places where the city of the city of the arts are, are doing a lot of culture shifting. So I was just in the city of Seattle, for example, and you cannot go two steps without seeing a billboard, native stores, um, you know, radio shows, magazines, like various other things forms of native art around. So therefore you will see that reflected right in the in quote American theater. And I'm putting quotes around American because mm -hmm. I think it's, um, you know, it's theater. And I think that, um, you know, we will definitely see that happen in the future. Uh, we shall see in our lifetime, right? If that happens, we can only hope. But wherever we are, I feel like the seeds continually need to be planted so that future generations to come can reap the benefits of the work that we are doing now. Of, of course. Um, you've been such a delight to talk with. I don't want to take up too much of your time because you're very busy and probably very tired. Um, <laughs> tech, but... uh, tech is fun and I love it. You get to see everything together and you know, this, this imagined world all come together. So yeah, I'm astounded by your energy, but um, I just wanted to, I usually like to end on this fun question of like, what's something you've seen, heard, or read recently that's inspiring you? Mm. Mm, mm, mm. Something I've re read or heard. Okay. <clears throat> I will say, because I am in the world of rent, deeply immersed <laughs> in the world of rent right now, um, working with this group of 18-year-olds who are the future, get on the stage during rehearsal with the most biggest smiles that you've ever seen in your entire life, knowing that their future is ahead of them and holding hands with people that maybe they have encountered for the first time in their lives in the state of Texas who will identify on the, the gender spectrum, the sexual orientation spectrum, um, sing Seasons of Love and I'll Cover You With a Thousand Kisses brings me so much joy because I know both on the stage in their future and off the stage, they were, are going to be the change makers that we need at this time and in the future for the American theater. Fantastic. We have one question in the chat really quickly. Uh, oh. Folks, we're really happy to see uh, your work in the Thanksgiving Day Parade. And they want to know if that's going to be an annual event, if that's going to keep happening. I hope so. 
Yes, absolutely. So we have been working for many, many years on that relationship. And Macy's is committed to working with us year after year, as well as the team that of cultural liaisons and community liaisons we put together. Um, we are growing from there. And I don't know if folks seen also something that's an Easter egg for you all to watch out for in the theater world is like, for example, check out the you know, there is a turkey, of course, and the end quote pilgrim belt buckle that's on the hat has changed to a star. It is now show turkey, which is really exciting to us. So there are small changes and we are in the thick of it. There will be even more changes year after year. There are no longer pilgrims in the parade, right? As the first opening image that you see on the NBC live broadcast. So we are making change and it really does take a whole village of people to do that. So they are committed to working with Indigenous Direction, both Larissa and myself every year. Also, um, going out to many educational schools, high schools, grade schools, about getting the accurate information that they need about what it means, not only of this, um, this feast that happened, but ideas of gratitude and what truly the value system of gratitude and what that means so that we can work together in all of our personhoods, right, to create safety, um, to create resistance and to create liberation together. Mm -hmm. Thank you so right. much, Ty. You're getting yeah, lots of love in the chat. Yeah, it's oh, yeah, well, it's, it's so great to talk to you. What what, what you said about those eighteen year olds? I don't mean to infantilize you. You're a little younger than me, though. And talking to you gives me the same kind of feeling of just the future of theater is bright if you're working in it. So it's really uh, amazing to talk to you, Ty. And I wish we could all come to to Houston and see Rent. Um, I know, me too. If you're anywhere nearby, folks, obviously go check it out. <laughs> Yes, please come. I, you know, the support means everything. And if you can't come in person, if folks who are listening to this, if you could let people know or folks out here, um, especially those in, you know, some of the most oppressed and marginalized community, I want folks to come see this to know that their bodies, their lived experience, and their breath of life is celebrated. And what a better way to, as a night at the theater to come together. So thank you so much. Um, thank yeah. you, Ty. So good to talk to you. Yeah, thanks, Ty. See you all. <laughs> okay. Bye now. Bye. Um, we're going to go now to John Moore, who is an arts journalist in Denver. Know John for years. John uh, has written for us a number of times, and now he writes for the Denver Gazette. Is that right? That's your latest uh, byline? Yeah, I'm writing for the Denver Gazette. Yeah, so John, I we have not spoken uh, for a while since I think the Miami conference, which was about four years ago, about this topic. We, we correspond about other things, but um, I think at that time you we were still with the DCPA uh, uh, media uh, venture. Could you tell us a little bit about what that was? And then did, I guess it's over now. It's no longer part of the. <laughs> well, sure. But first, I, I just have to say, like you, I'm just I'm so invigorated by Ty Defoe. I mean, oh, my God. Yeah. What an incredible body of work that was. Um, that's so hopeful. Um, but yeah, my name's uh, my name's John Moore. I use he him pronouns. Um, I'm the arts columnist at the Denver Gazette newspaper. I was the theater critic for, the long, for a long time at the Denver Post, as you know, Rob. Um, yeah. I, I took a buyout and it was interesting because 
I kind of had the distinction for better or for worse of when I took the buyout, I was the last full-time salaried reporter critic who was dedicated exclusively to covering theater in Colorado, but you know what the ecology of journalism is going. And um, so I took a buyout. Um, I was then approached by the Denver Center to essentially start a media outlet using the Denver Center's website as a way to bring, to sort of make up for the dwindling local journalism coverage of the theater community. And so the, the, the unprecedented kind of mission was let's bring in a professional journalist inside, let's create a new center for that person and have them do what they've been doing for 20 years, only just do it um, covering the entire Colorado arts community. Um, it was a it was a, a really interesting mission to um, bring journalism onto the website to give people another reason to come to the Denver Center's website. But it, it instilled goodwill in the community. There were a lot of theater companies and 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 other arts organizations that um, the only media coverage they were getting was from the Denver Center, um, and it was good for the Denver Center because just that increased traffic was having people reading something about maybe the Colorado Shakespeare Festival and they say, oh, the color purple is playing at the Denver Center. I want to buy tickets to, to that. Right. And it was really uh, symbiotic. Um, everybody was happy with it. Then the pandemic came and oh, yeah. everybody went away for um, for two years. And in the meantime, the Denver Gazette started and, you know, I'm just a died in the world journalist at heart and they um, wanted to beef up their arts coverage and so they hired me to be not a critic I'm, I'm never going to be a critic again but um but I am sort of serving as the you know an arts columnist for all of Denver with a heavy emphasis on local theater yeah we, we see a lot of your clips you you're very good about sharing them on our social so we can reshare them that's what I I wish more journalists would do that just to remind us what's going on around the country um uh so what you said you would never be a critic again, John. I guess what, why is that? I guess at the Denver Center Theater, I can imagine why you wouldn't be a critic because yeah. Denver Center, you know, it was it was promoting and, and lifting up and yeah. letting people know about theater. But well, mostly because I, I always wonder why people would want to be a critic in the first place. And I did it. Sure. For, I did it for twelve years, and it's a it's a lonely, hard life if you're going to be doing it responsibly and professionally and respectfully and ethically. And, you know, the number one purpose for a theater critic who writes for something like the Denver Post is to be to be helpful to the readers of that newspaper, which means you have to have a high critical bar and a consistent critical bar. And, you know, that that constantly puts you in opposition in some ways to the community, no matter how much you try to be respectful and not not hurtful about it. Um, you know, the slings and arrows for 12 years that you that you both send out and take can be exhausting to your soul. And um, I didn't really like it. I, I took it very seriously, but, um, hmm. but I don't ever, I, I don't want to be hated and I don't want to, <laughs> I, I, one thing I did do right after I left the Denver post is I started a nonprofit called the Denver Actors Fund, which I wouldn't have been in a position to do if I were still at the Denver post, but I started this nonprofit to sort of respond to um, a whole lot of uh, artists who were in really um, bad medical situations and they were having trouble paying their bills. And so I just, you know, used whatever position or, or, or privilege or power to organize the community 
to start up a fund and we're going to turn 10 years old on June 1st. And in that time, we've now made $1.2 million available to the Colorado theater artists to pay down their medical bills. And that's who I really am. I mean, that's my service to the community. Um, I, it's better to be liked than to be misunderstood or feared or, or any of that, frankly. Right. It does take a certain temperament and, uh, thick skin and a certain, and not everybody has that. I mean, it, it's, it's actually, you know, God bless the ones who do. I, I've done some of my, in my time, I think I have a critical impulse, but again, it's, uh, it is, it can be lonely. And, uh, again, I feel like having an opinion in public, uh, in the age of the internet is also very fraught, you know, just like yeah, having... true. And at the same time though, Rob, you, you, you know, we all want to be advocates for theater. I mean, it's the mm -hmm. reason American theater exists. It's the reason TCG exists. Um, but, but journalism is a little bit different. And what we're seeing, there are, there are ramifications as well to the demise of the American theater critic. Um, you know, there, 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 the ecology won't allow for there to be another full-time salaried theater critic in a city like Denver. There just isn't a media outlet that can dedicate those kind of resources to one discipline ever again. So we're all now generalists and very few of the actual media outlets that used to produce reviews regularly still do it at all. Um, yeah. because they find very little return on the investment of sending a freelancer or somebody out there. So we've seen a big upsurge in in blogger critics and advocacy critics um, who tend to want to help spread the word about uh, all the great work that's being done, and there's a considerable amount of it. But when there isn't that one person who is tasked with having to, to have that consistency to let people know um, this is uh, really, truly special, um, and you really need to make time to see this when when you have a combined sort of citizen journalism that essentially says that everything is not to be missed, then it starts to just become white noise after a while. And you don't the, the, the readers, I think, and I hear this all the time, people who used to send me very pointed emails for 20 years now tell me that they miss having somebody tell them what they might want to skip because it doesn't really do a theater com company a whole lot of good for everybody to send you to everything they do because if if it's not the greatest thing in the world then the person who goes to see it is no longer going to trust the voice of the person who told them to go and they they're less likely to come back to your theater so you know we're missing that one piece of the puzzle where it was somebody saying this is truly appointment theater you have to see this show mm -hmm. um, so there's, you know, that that's that's the downfall of the, the, you know, I think critics actually are, I think it's a noble profession. And I think those people who are willing to put up with being misunderstood um, really do a great service to their communities when they do it responsibly and, and without malice. I think the thing you said about consistency is, is the thing I would hone in on as well, because it's not just about the, being a consumer guide. I think it's about following work over a, following artists and the community's work over a certain amount of time so that you can make comparisons. I mean, I feel like as an artist, if I were an artist in the scene, I would want somebody who'd seen my work before to come back and see it again. And I would, I, I must know that I, although I love to be everything, I would love everything to be loved. Mm -hmm. Maybe this wasn't, this one didn't hit as well. I, I just feel like artists, if they're, maybe if they're honest, I have talked to them, they enjoy, they, 
they obviously don't like bad reviews and they have a lot of criticism, some, some just, just about the critical uh, establishment and the way critics view them. But to be seen over a career, you know, mm-hmm. by, by a, I mean, someone who might not be even sympathetic to your work, but I don't know, I feel like getting, for better or worse, honest, very loaded word, but honest feedback on your work, I just don't think, you know, you might not get it from your director in the room, even, but hopefully you get it from somewhere or you just can, you can never get better at, at your work. So, um, you know. Yeah, and I anyway. think I think we're yeah, missing a little bit of, um, uh, what goes with that is a little bit of institutional knowledge. You know, I'm, yeah. thinking, I'm thinking about how the Arvada Center, for example, just announced that they're going to be doing a production of the Laramie Project next season. And that's obviously one of the most produced plays in America over the last 20 years. But but it's it's fun to be somebody who was just getting started around the time that the Denver Center uh, was doing the world premiere of that production. And you kindly asked me to write about the 20th anniversary of the Laramie Project for American Theater. And I think we are we are lacking um, the person who can wrap into their conversations about a play that's being done now with the the history of the play in that city over the yeah. past 20 years because um let's face it even you know these well-intentioned champions of our local theater community there's there's a few of them and they're indefatigable um but they're not getting paid a lot of money if anything and they've got lives to live and they tend to turn over and mm-hmm. um you know so there's so we need to have some sort of ecology that, will, that somebody can actually get paid to do it so that they'll still be here 20 years from now but I don't really see that happening. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. Uh, and and something interesting, if, if I can just jump in here, yeah, John. No. Um, but <laughs> something something interesting that I've been noticing lately is like there's not as much of a space to criticize the art and the performance as there used to be. But I've been seeing more and more arts journalists and writers start critiquing institutions and looking a little bit more internally at processes and rehearsals and and how the industry itself of theater functions in this country. And I think, so maybe some of that critical energy has shifted there. I'm, I'm not sure what you think. I think that's spot on and I've never really thought about it in those terms, but you're, you're, absolute, you're absolutely right. And those are really important conversations that are happening um, about the rehearsal process, about the hours that, that actors are working, um, especially during COVID. I think uh, a lot of companies came back from COVID and were and had lost so much revenue. And first, you must survive. And we we went through a period here where where I had to do a COVID watch in the paper every week about which uh, which um, productions were being canceled. Um, but there was there's been a um, an interesting trend, and I wonder if this is true nationally that companies that never did understudies before or union companies that do do understudies have doubled and tripled up on their understudies so that under any circumstance, no matter how many people come down with COVID, uh, the show can go on because we're done losing revenue. And it's created more, it's created more employment for local actors, which is great. It has meant that there have been fewer canceled performances, but um, speaking of the Arvada Center, they just did a production of Our Town where on the morning after the opening night, there was a positive COVID test. The person had to leave the show. And it was just the start of something where they went 69 days before they had the cast that was cast on stage um, all together 
um, in the same sh in the same show, um, which leads to all those kind of questions and and more that you're inferring there um, about about what's what's how safe is it? Are you know are we are we are, are we being are we fulfilling our promises that we made during the break to be to be better to be more humanistic to be looking at the needs of the of the actors in all different kinds of ways because I see some contradiction personally about the execution of that and um, all great conversations bringing it back to what you said I also feel like there is that because if you go 69 days without having the cast that you cast performing the show there is I think a little bit of grace going on most both with what critics you have but mostly with audiences and kind of understanding this isn't necessarily the show we rehearsed but we're doing the best we can and I feel like we've had a whole year where the the art has um you know you look at people on stage and they look sick you know and they're just powering through and you just are so impressed with that but this whole idea that the show must go on the show must go on but I thought during COVID we said no we don't have to be that community anymore right. but I think we've gone back to that tenfold in terms of the show must go on and um and 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 I think ultimately it is showing up in the the quality of the performances that we're seeing mm -hmm. uh speaking of shows John I want to just ask what uh in addition to Laramie or Vado, what 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 do you have you seen lately that you're excited about or what are you looking forward to in the region how how, how is Colorado theater these days Colorado <laughs> is is well that's such an interesting question and I don't <laughs> and I don't know how much time we have but um you know because yeah, you know me Rob I'll keep talking um sure sure you know, when I think about the Colorado theater landscape, I think in terms of the state, um, yeah. and in a word that the landscape in the Colorado theater is is expansive, and certainly Denver is the epicenter of the landscape, uh, and the Denver Center for the Performing Arts is the epicenter of that epicenter. But we do have about eighty currently operating theater companies throughout the state, and um, the, the there's one that's literally two hundred and seventy five mile drive from Denver. Um, and it's still within the state of Colorado. So um, this is a community, you know, that crosses, you know, urban corridors or rural communities, posh mountain towns like Aspen and community theaters all along the way. So there's a kind of very little consensus, I would say, of mission and purpose, budget, scale. Um, but as a theater goer who sees about you know, I go to about 170 shows a year for 20 years, which is such the the the, the joy of my life. Um, is that every night out of the theater is its own adventure because because it is it is different from one place to the next. And um, to get more specific, in the you know this is May in Colorado, um, we tend to start to when the, when it becomes warm, we go to the mountains and we go outdoors. Um, a lot of Denver companies are doing. You know, Denver has in very much become an immersive hotbed, one of the leaders in the country that was significantly spurred um, last year by the David Byrne Project Theater of the Mind through Denver Center for the Performing Arts. That was that was an indoor immersive experience. But, you know, 40,000 people went to go see that project. And um, but the part of the reason that was speaking of COVID, I mean, COVID was a part of, well, COVID's a part of every production, but um, but there were understudies in theater of the mind who ended up doing more performances than some of the 
actors who were cast because of the prevalence of, <laughs> of COVID at that time. But I bring it up again, not about COVID, but because it's an indication that Colorado has so many theater companies that are developing truly skilled actors who are proficient at this particular type of theater that David Byrne felt like he could do this here because not only did he have all the resources at the Denver Center to build that incredible structure that was his mind, but they had designers, cast, crew, people who could pull it off. And it was an entirely locally cast production because there's so many actors in Colorado who do immersive and do it well. And um, there's a lot of immersive going on this summer, but for the most part, people are getting in their cars and driving. We have um, our oldest theater companies, our most stable companies in Colorado tend to be the ones in the mountains that just come out like Brigadoon for the summer. Um, we've got Mountain Theater in um, seven or eight different towns, uh, probably most notably the Creed Repertory Theater, um, which was started by a bunch of University of Kansas students in, this, in the late 60s. And Mandy Patinkin was a big company member when he was in college. Um, yeah. but, but we've got it. In, we've got theater in Grand Lake. We've got theater in Breckenridge. We've got theater in Pagosa Springs. Um, our oldest theater company is called Little Theater of the Rockies, which is 89. That's not a mountain town, but it's in Greeley. Um, that is primarily now a theater company run, uh, for the students at the University of Northern Colorado. But through the years, they've had people like Nick Nolte back in like 1964 was performing <laughs> the Rockies, but, you know, and then, um, but closer to home, the, the Colorado Shakespeare Festival is um, the second oldest Shakespeare Festival in the country uh, behind the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. They've uh, sort of had their own uh, the, the celebrity kind of history, you know, um, Val Kilmer performed um, as, as Hamlet, uh, in the months leading up to the original release of Top Gun. Oh, and wow. yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't a big star. They cast him to, do, to, he wanted to do Hamlet. And then the movie came out and then the performances began and they went through an entire summer on the University of Colorado campus where, where um, young fans of Val Kilmer were literally scaling the walls and jumping over into the Mary Rapine Outdoor Amphitheater just to get a look at Val Kilmer. But wow. there's, you know, and depending and but the but uh, I want to get specific about what's going on now. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's exciting that um, the Shakespeare Festival this year is uh, they they've been doing they've been doing a lot of uh, um, intentional casting around gender for uh, for years at the uh, Shakespeare Festival and this this year I think a lot of attention is on um, their production of King Lear. Um, they're bringing in somebody, Rob, I'm sure, you know, um, actor and playwright, Ellen McLaughlin, um, yeah. to play the title role. And for those who don't know that name, she was the original angel in the first Broadway production of Angels in America. Um, amazing. Amazing. And that, yes, yeah, so that'll be really exciting. But I, I wanted to bring the conversation back to, uh, something that you were talking, uh, about right at the top when you were talking about Nataki Garrett and, yeah, yeah. and, and leadership transitions. Because this sort of addresses that and the question you just asked. The play I'm going to see tonight at Curious Theater Company is called On the Exhale. And it's um, a one-woman show about uh, a, a woman who was deeply impacted by the Sandy Hook uh, massacre. Um, and it stars Dee Covington. Um, it's, a, it's a particularly meaningful production in Colorado right now because it is 
the final production of the company's 25th season, and it marks the end of the leadership uh, tenure of the founders of the company, Chip Walton and his wife, Dee Covington. Chip has, has directed this last production. His wife is starring in it. Um, it's about a subject that could not be more meaningful to people in Colorado because of our unusual um, propensity to have mass shootings in our in our backyard. But um, but I wanted to bring it up specifically because when we talk about leadership transitions in 2023 or beyond, I think um, if a company is facing this, you really I, I think you should really look at Curious as a blueprint to, for how to do it right. Hmm. Uh, because what they did is a year ago, they announced that Chip and D would be stepping back at the end of this season. And that longtime company member named Jada Suzanne Dixon would be succeeding as the artistic director. And it was such a smart choice because she's she's an actor and a director and a writer and a humanist who um, she grew up in Denver. Her father was a major figure in Denver city government. I actually did some theater with her when she was in high school. We did a production Bye Bye Birdie together. But um, but she went off and she got her professional training. Um, uh, I believe it was Carnegie Mellon. And um, she came she came back and. Um, She's what I love about it. She's never she has not been an artistic director before. So this is what I think the mistake is that so many theater companies make that are trying to write 40 years of wrongs in 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 uh, over, overnight is that I've seen so many companies that have said, OK, we're, we're going to hire our first um, fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. And then that's the end of it there's no there's no plan for how do you ensure how do you how do you ensure that person's success mm-hmm. um in that and and curious i think adopted this model where they they gave it a year um where chip and d's you know were were part of the transition process um and that gave jada like all the time and resources she needed to both kind of assess and consider and plan what curious was going to look like under her unique vision and she really didn't sit back and watch. She made some immediate changes to bring the company more fully back into the larger community. Um, she shored up the company and she announced um, a really exciting season. Um, and it's almost, you know, inc- incidental to this is that she becomes the first black man or woman to be running a car at a theater company that does not identify itself as a black theater company. Right, uh, right. It was it was such an impressive transition. You know, I mean, in my end of the year annual awards, I named Jada our Colorado Theater Person of the Year, um, and now um, it's all sort of culminating with this handoff that um, will be complete with uh, Dee's performance in On the Exhale. Um, and I think that they've I think they've done it right, where another com- a lot of well-meaning companies have kind of bungled it. Um, so I'm I'm excited about that. That sounds um, great. And I know I, if you don't mind, if you don't mind, because it's relevant to our conversation, I think yeah, please, please. there's another huge trend going on in Denver that I that I think is really heartening. And you wouldn't necessarily think Denver would be the place would, where this would be happening. But, um, you know, this is I mentioned the mass shootings. We had the Club Q shooting in Carter Springs um, not too long ago. Um, this is the backyard of Matthew Shepard. We talked about the Laramie yeah. Project. And as we know, the queer community is just, you know, under all this political and social and physical attack right now. And um, I've been writing a lot about that um, as it's 
played out. But I noticed a trend last month and I wrote a full column about it just because I just was looking at the listings and, and I realized that um, we had seven Denver theater companies that were separately and organically presenting positive queer themed live theater offerings at the same time. And it wasn't a festival. It was just, it was, it just happened to be that we had, you know, one company doing Lacage and we had the Denver Center um, doing, you know, a production of The Color Purple. We had a, a really small um, emerging company called uh, The Grapefruit Lab that did a, an original piece called Strange Bird, Queer Bird. Um, we had a production of Corpus Christi. And, and I took heart from all of this because not only does that show that these companies were, are kind of stepping up at this time to tell these stories, there's an economic component to this too, especially coming out of the pandemic, that there's this assumed kind of presumption that um, if they're going to do these productions, they're going to be commercially viable. And, and a quick example of that is that Lacage FO, which is in one of the reddest, whitest counties in Colorado, Arapahoe County, um, where 20 years ago, they just, Lacage being this giant beating heart of a show would never have been done at Town Hall just because just because of the, of the topic. And um, and they just closed out this incredibly successful run where it, where and I was reporting this on the box office because this is, I think, where the power lies is that um, it had the highest pre-sale of any show on the Town Hall season for this particular year. And that included a lot of popular titles like Newsies. And hmm. the, the idea that Lacage was the highest selling you know, which means not through subscriptions, but people just want to come see the show um, in a place like Littleton. It's just so heartening. You know, you're seeing these signs where um, where you feel like it's it, not only does the theater, we've, we have these conversations all the time about not only does the theater community need to do better and be better, but that applies to audiences too. That means yeah. audiences being willing to go and see pieces that take them out of their comfort zone and see something that uh, they might not think that they would enjoy. And I'm seeing I'm seeing positive signs. I don't want to be Pollyannish about it, but I'm seeing I'm seeing positive signs all around about uh, things becoming better. That is a, a great note to end on, John. We got we got to wrap up here, but uh, Lacage in the, in a red county is a great is a great note to end on. These are yeah. these are you know uh, I often joke these are like editorial meetings uh, that we conduct in public. But I've got a lot of, a lot of ideas for coverage in Colorado. <laughs> we may be tapping you in the future for some of these. Uh, some of these stories. Uh, John, it's always a pleasure yeah, thank to you. check in. Um, but what, people can find you at the denvergazette.com. Would that be the best way to look for you or find you on Twitter? At... Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm more John on Instagram. I'm more I'm uh, more theater on Twitter and I'm Denver, okay. denvergazette.com. Yeah, thank you. Is and now, theater, with, theater with the RE, John? Yeah, so it good. is. It is theater with an RE. Yeah, well, that's how but we Allie, do it. But Ali, it's nice to meet you. Yeah, so great to, to meet you. Uh, support your local journalists, follow John, support TCG, and find out more about theater in your area. Uh, yeah. Thanks so All much right. for listening. And if you don't thanks, mind, John. if people are curious about Denver Actors, Ford, Denver Actors Fund, because other communities are using it as an inspiration to start their own, you can find out more information about that at denveractorsfund.org. Yeah, definitely look that up. That's a great, a great initiative and a great note to end on. John, great to talk to you. Thank Allie. you. Till next time. Till next Here. time. Thanks so much. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.